Welcome to Kohelet, a podcast brought to you by the elders of Maricopa Springs Family Church. In this podcast, our goal is to bring you teachings from the Bible on Christian theology. This episode, we're going to continue our multi-part discussion on chapter 14 of Systematic Theology by Dr. Wayne Grudem. This chapter is on the Trinity. And last episode, we stepped first through revealing the Trinity progressively through Scripture. So we looked at partial revelation of the Trinity concept in the Old Testament and verses that applied to that. And then the full revelation of the Trinity from the New Testament and verses that summed up a majority of what we know as far as the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, and how the Bible teaches the Trinity. And just for reference, the word Trinity, again, as mentioned in the previous episode, is never found in the Bible, but that idea is taught throughout all of Scripture. And it was defined as God eternally existing as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. So we broke all three of those concepts down in the previous episode, that the first one, God, is three persons. The second being each person is fully God. And the third being there is one God. So those three statements that summarize biblical teaching on the Trinity were visited and discussed in the previous episode. So for reference, if you haven't listened to it, go back and re-listen to it. Today, we're going to start with a discussion on some of the analogies that have been used for the Trinity. So we must start with saying that all analogies that we can use and process with our human brains are going to have shortcomings. Recognize that the Trinity is a description of an immeasurable, infinite being, an eternal being, God. And we are finite beings. We have a beginning. We are not infinite. We are not internal. And so in order for us to understand something that is incomprehensible, all of our analogies or concepts are going to have some shortcomings to them. So there have been some analogies that have been put forth, and the book discusses a lot of these analogies that include things such as the Trinity and God being described as three leaves of a clover. But this analogy fails because each leaf is only one part of the clover, and all three persons of God is fully, they are fully God. So that's important to remember. You might also hear the analogy of the three states of water. That would be water, steam, and ice. However, in that analogy, it would mean that a molecule of water is only one of the states at a time, which is not how the Trinity is described. And then there are several other examples of analogies that are in the book 
that I encourage you to go through and understand and understand how they fall short really of describing this concept of the Trinity that we know to be true. However, we struggle to fully define in ways that are understandable to our finite, limited minds. How do you fit an unlimited being and its concept into the limited, finite mind? It's impossible. So there is also something really important to understand when it comes to the Trinity, and that is that the three statements that we mentioned earlier, again, that being God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is one God, errors have come up by denying any one of the three statements. And I'll go through some of them. Again, the book lists a lot of different ones, but I'll hit on some of the big ones for us to discuss. First off, uh, there's the concept of modalism. So modalism claims there is one person, one God, one single person of the Trinity who appears to us in three different forms or modes. So this is also called Sabellianism and modalistic monarchianism. And this gained attraction to emphasize the fact that there is only one God. So we believe that there is only one God uh, and that God acts in three persons. Modalism says there is one person that appears to us in different forms. Uh, and it uses verses like John chapter 10, verse 30, that says he, or that has Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. And this is just an attempt to make the Trinity easier to understand. However, modalism is false. And it's false because it denies the distinct individualism of the Trinity, as well as the interpersonal relationship. So some instances where this becomes obvious that, that modalism is incorrect is for it to start when Jesus is baptized. So Jesus is there being baptized. The Father speaks and the Spirit descends on him. So three different persons acting in, an, in a singular event. There's also the concept in Scripture where it says that Jesus is interceding on behalf of us to the Father. If modalism is correct, then the idea of Jesus interceding for us is also lost. So we know that's not true. And then the final one that I'll throw out is the idea of the atonement. The atonement would be lost also because God sent his son as a substitutionary sacrifice. So God sent Jesus to atone for our sins. If God and Jesus were the same person in different forms, then that would not be a, a possible case that we would understand. So the atonement is another reason why modalism can't be true. And then there are some groups that believe that, for instance, uh, the United Pentecostal Church holds a modalistic position of God. So just be aware that these are things that are out there in uh, society and in even what's considered the Christian subculture. Another error that's come from denying one of those three statements is Arianism. So Arianism uh, is a view that was declared heretical by the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. 
And what Arianism states is that Jesus was at one point created by God the Father. And Arianism used verses such as Jesus being called God's only begotten son to state their purpose. Um, and the Nicene Creed stated that the, in the Nicene Creed, it states that Jesus is begotten, not made, and points to the eternal nature of the relationship. So again, if you want more information on that and also the other errors, uh, I'll have more coming up, but the other errors, please reference the book on that. Um, there's also the discussion on subordination uh, and errors in subordination, and that is somewhat like Arianism. It says uh, uh, that, it, that it's like Arianism, but that Jesus was eternal, yet still subordinate to the Father, and that he's deriving his being from the Father. So again, more discussion on that in the book, but that is also false. There's adoptionism, which may seem like it would be rare, but it 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 is not in a lot of people's views. Um, it's like Arianism in that Jesus was an ordinary, ordinary man until he was baptized and was ab abducted then as God's son. So adoptionism believes that Jesus was an ordinary man, but then after he was baptized, he was adopted then as God's son. Uh, and this is not an accepted canon view of Jesus or the Trinity uh, for a lot of different reasons. We have the creation story uh, that puts Jesus in the creation story. There's the divine conception. Uh, there's fulfillment of the law uh, and the requirements for a perfect sacrifice and, and a lot of different other things. And then there is also this concept of tritheism, uh, tri being three theism, uh, which would put, th it's a view that holds that there's three distinct gods. And this is obviously heretical and ignores multiple scriptures that speak specifically about there being only one true God. So with all of those different errors, it's important to say that to understand why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. So for one thing, and we mentioned it a little bit, but the atonement is at stake uh, if, the, if the Trinity is, is not true. Uh, and that's because Jesus must be fully God to bear the full wrath of God for all of our sins. Again, Jesus must be fully God to bear the full wrath of God for all of our sins. Another thing that's important with the doctrine of the Trinity is justification being by faith alone. Uh, and that's at stake because if Jesus wasn't God, then we could rightly doubt whether we could fully trust him. So where would that faith be based in? We don't base our faith in man uh, or anything less than God. So having faith in Jesus is, is where that justification by faith alone comes from. And also, if Jesus isn't God, could we really pray to him? Only God could be infinite and omniscient, and only God can hear and respond to all of our prayers. So Jesus must be God. And then one final one that I'll mention, and it's not the, it's not the all-encompassing one, or these aren't all-encompassing for why the doctrine of the Trinity is important, but one very important one is that saying that Jesus is created 
and not God gives credit for our salvation to a creature and not the creator. So if, if Jesus was created and our salvation is through Jesus, then our salvation comes through a creature and not the creator, which we know is not, is not right and is not true. So let's talk about the distinctions, some of the distinctions between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the persons of the Trinity, they have different primary functions in the way that they relate to the world. So for instance, when we look at the creation story, we see that God, the Father, spoke into existence creation, that God, the Son, carried out the creative decrees, and if you read the first part of Genesis, you see that God, the Spirit, sustained creation. He was hovering over creation. So the Spirit sustained creation. When we look at the redemption story, we see that God, the Father, planned redemption. The Son, Jesus, obeyed and accomplished redemption. And then at Pentecost, with the Spirit coming down, we see that the Spirit applied redemption to us. So in the book, on page, starting on page 299, Grudem also goes into a discussion on the roles and submission of the Son to the Father. And I think this is an important discussion to look at and to understand. However, I'm not going to cover it in this, and it's 20 pages long. It's from pages 299 to 319. So I encourage you to go and, and look at that, but I'm not going to dive into those, uh, those points and, and the discussion in here just for the sake of time. So now let's look at the relationship between the three persons and the being of God. And what I mean by that is what is the difference between person and being? And how is God one undivided being, yet three distinct persons? So in in the book, Grudem has a lot of different imagery, but it's important to recognize that with all of these imageries, uh, images, they all do fall short. And he explains that in the in the book, but, but all of the imagery falls short of explaining the Trinity. Because it's important to begin by affirming that each person of the Trinity is fully God. And what I mean by that is, and, and this is quoted from Grudem, each person has the whole fullness of God's being in himself. That's each person has the whole fullness of God's being in himself. So the Son is not just one-third of God, or partly God, but the Son is holy and fully God, as is the Father, and as is the Spirit. So some imagery might show a pie chart with the parts of God split up into three different parts, and that's incorrect because, like, as we mentioned, each person is fully God. We also can't assume that there's any personal distinctions that are an additional attribute of God. So sometimes you'll see a circle that is labeled as God, and then there'll be a, a bubble on the top of that circle, three different bubbles on the top of that circle that specify the Spirit or the Father or the Son, showing different attributes that... Uh, that are additional and distinct to the individual person 
of God, whether it's the Son or the Father. And that's also uh, not correct because no one person of the Godhead, Godhead has attributes that are not possessed by the others. We also can't say that each of the three persons are just different viewpoints of looking at one God. So, you know, again, you might you might have an object, and if you're looking at it from the front, you see, say, the Father, and if you're looking at it from the right, you see the Son, and if you're looking at it from the left, you see the Holy Spirit, because that is just one single distinct object. Uh, and each person of the Trinity is maintained as being a distinct object person. So one being, but three distinct persons. So the only way that they really differ is the way that they relate to each other and creation. So the father uniquely relates to the son and the spirit as father. The son uniquely relates to the father and spirit as son. And the spirit uniquely relates to the Father and Son as Spirit. So the idea of the Trinity is a kind of existence that is far different from anything we have experienced. So to wrap our minds around the idea of the Trinity is impossible, at least completely, because it is a kind of existence that is far different than anything we have experienced. So then some might say, you know, can we understand the Trinity? And errors have been made around the Trinity where people have tried to simplify the doctrine and remove the mystery from it. And you can't, you cannot remove the mystery from the Trinity. However, you can come to understand the Trinity while recognizing that there are parts that are going to be a mystery. So, there are some things that we can understand and some things that we can't understand. Things that we can understand are things that we can understand because the Bible teaches about them. And those things include God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. And we can know how those three persons relate to each other. And we've discussed that earlier in this episode. Things that we can't fully understand include, you know, we wonder how they can be distinct persons, yet each person have the whole being of God, and yet God be undivided. So that the, so again, the, we can't understand how they are distinct persons, that all of those distinct persons are, the, the, possess the whole being of God, but yet God being undivided. And it's spiritually healthy for us to acknowledge that God is far greater of a being than we could ever comprehend. So some may say, well, if we are supposed to believe the idea of the Trinity and these different concepts of God, and it's unfathomable for our minds to, to wrap, our, wrap around this concept, then is scripture asking us to believe a contradiction? And no, scripture is not asking us to believe a contradiction. It doesn't, scripture doesn't ask us to believe that there is one God and that there is also three gods, or that God is three persons and that God is not three persons. That's, that's not true. Scripture says that God is three persons and there is one God. 
So that's not a contra contradiction. It's just something that we can't understand. This is you would call this a mystery or a paradox. But that should not trouble us as long as both aspects are clearly taught in Scripture, which is what we have looked at and what we have worked through this episode and the previous episode. So you might think, be thinking, all right, John, so you've given me so much about these different concepts of the Trinity, and it's confusing, and, and you know, I'm going to have to work through this more, and you're, you're right, I also am constantly working through this and learning more, but, but what does this really mean for me now? How do I apply the idea of the Trinity in my, in my walk with Christ? And so we can look at how the Trinity actually is applied, and we can see it in uh, our lives. So one of the things that we see from, from the Trinity is that God has both a unity and a diversity. And we see that in uh, mirrored and modeled in different human interactions. For instance, marriage has unity and diversity. So when we look at marriage and we look at godly marriages, we see there's a tri-unity between God, man, and woman. And that the two persons, the man and the woman, are persons that are distinct individuals Yet in marriage, they become one in body, mind, and spirit. So again, it's not an all-encompassing analogy to the Trinity, but it is an application of the Trinity that we see in the Christian life. Another example of that is the church. So the church has many members. We are all members of the united body of Christ, the church. However, in what I just said is the example of, of unity there. There's unity in being one body of Christ, but diversity in there being many members. And we see that played out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, verse 12. And even the idea of unity and diversity that might sound like they are opposites, uh, but we have unity in the church through diversity. So we see a diversity of gifts in the church. Some people are given gifts in leadership, in administration, in prayer, in thanksgiving, in all different types of, of areas. And all of these different gifts work to body, work together, unifying the body of Christ. We also see through scripture the unity of the Jewish people and the Gentiles. When Christ came, there no longer was Jew nor Greek, but we were one in Christ. So these people who are very diverse, which include us, are united in Christ. And then I also think it's really important to recognize that uh, even though we are united in Christ, we never lose, and Christ never asks us to lose, we never lose our individual identities. So we're never changed into, say, like a cookie-cutter version of a Christian. Right? God created you in the perfect way, individual as you are, to be an individual member of his united body, the church. All right, 
So that is pretty much what we're going to discuss specifically on the Trinity. However, I do want to let you know that in the next episode, we're going to dive into the additional note from this chapter, which Grudem goes into a discussion on the Mormon view of God. Uh, and it does tie quite well to the Trinity. Uh, so stick around, tune in next time for the discussion where I'll take you through Grudem's notes and commentary on the Mormon religion and their views and how those don't fit in the Christian theological canon. Thank you.